Yeah, come on. I was impressed. Bless God. So, Father, we just thank you for the gift that these brothers are to the body of Christ. Father, I thank you for the story that you've just revealed and uncovered that you writ, wrote about so many years ago and invited them into a discovery, Lord. And in, in their discovery, Father, I thank you that there's a discovery for each one of us. So we ask for the grace of just revelation and understanding over them, even as they share in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So that's why you want to stew us. You drive uh, turkey. Can I ask, a, I want to start with a question real quick. Bill asked who was here last night. Can I see hands who was not here last night? Oh. Okay. We might need to Elevator give version. a preface. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, for those of you who don't know, this has been in my family, passed down about seven generations, something like that. Seven. Yep. It's about 200 years old. It was used by the slaves in my family. They, they used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. Uh, they were owned by a slave master who literally beat them if you heard them praying because he didn't like the idea of them praying for freedom because he didn't want them to get a kind of hope for or desire for freedom. So he literally beat them if you heard them praying. Uh, there were people beat to death on this plantation just for going fishing without asking. So that's how cruel slavery was there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, where they were slaves. But Can I add something right there? Yeah, go ahead. This, so we do a, a presentation of our story, which is what we did last night. What we're doing right now is completely unscripted. We make this up as we go, and we just kind of want to feel, how, you know, where the Lord wants to go with this room. But I, I wanted to interject here. you got to understand something about Louisiana. So you have the... There's no slavery in the north. There's slavery in the south. But if you were a slave in the northern part of the south, it wasn't as bad as the, the further south you got. And so if you were a slave, the last thing you wanted, there's, there's plenty of documentation on this, you did not want to get sold further down south. And Louisiana was and Mississippi, but really Louisiana was kind of the end of the line. The worst. That's where they sent the disobedient ones or the ones that they considered to be problems. You got sent to Louisiana. Yeah, so remember the movie uh, 12 Years a Slave? Solomon Northrup. That, that was his uh, slave narrative. And actually, everything except for one little detail was exactly accurate. They played that out to exactly everything that he wrote in his slave narrative. He was a slave in Louisiana. And that was, everybody feared being a slave in Louisiana. So that's how cruel slavery was there. <clears throat> and uh, they didn't like slaves to pray, especially on that plantation that these folks were on, but they prayed anyway. So they, for those who weren't here, and I, I give a little bit more extra too, uh, for those who were here last night, they would sneak into a barn at night and uh, take this pot in there with them. They went at night so their prayer meeting wouldn't be seen, but to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard. So they lay it flat on the ground and er inverted, lay it flat on the ground, and then take like three or four rocks and prop up the edges of the pot so it will be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. Now, here's uh, the little extra I want to give to you. I found out, after combing through 3,500 slave narratives, I found 400 times where other slaves had to have secret prayer meetings because they were for forbidden to pray. 
One of the reasons why they were forbidden to pray also was because of insurrections. There were insurrections that were going on, right? So they were afraid of clandestine meetings of any, of any type. But also, too, <coughs> in this presentation, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like they were a foster hope. But of those 400 times, I found about 200 times where they also used wash pots, barrels, and kettles like this one to muffle their voices as they prayed. I found those slave narratives in um, Louisiana, of course, also in North Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Arkansas. Those different states, I found, found, found similar ways where they prayed like that. One funny story I want to throw in about how to <coughs> there's this one slave is in North Carolina. The story is told during the slave narrative that uh, they were praying under a pot so that the master wouldn't hear them. But uh, it said that O-Ligion hit the slave, and she jumped up, and she started jumping and leaping and shouting. <laughs> uh, O-Ligion means the Holy Ghost hit her, right? But she got hit by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so she started jumping and leaping and shouting. And then uh, the next thing, they knew the slave master's wife came in to hear what the commotion was. But when she came in, O-Ligion hit her, too. <laughs> and, and she started jumping and leaping and shouting. And then the slave master himself came in to see what the commotion was, and he started jumping and leaping and shouting. Wow. And from that day forward on that plantation, he didn't stop him from praying. Wow. Yeah. So you, you read some of these amazing stories of what God was doing in the midst of those times. But anyway, so as slaves were sold, sold across the country, they kept this secret prayer meeting going. And... Uh, and uh, one of the things they would do, they would sing a song in the middle of the night, still away, still away, still away to Jesus. I'm not, some of the old folks may have heard some of those songs. You study some of the old slave uh, songs like, uh, uh, what is that? Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, some of those others. But Still Away to Jesus was actually a secret cold song that slaves sang in the middle of the day to let everybody know there was going to be a prayer meeting that night. Wow. So what they would do is they... <clears throat> They didn't have street lights like we have today, so they would bend the branches, the big branches of trees, in the direction that the prayer meeting was going to be. So the first person would go out, and, uh, and then the other people would feel which way the branches were bent. They, they said they didn't tell each other what time the prayer meeting was going to be because they didn't want it to go back to the big house, right? And so uh, they just let the Holy Spirit wake them up. So they all woke up at the same time period, and they would sneak off to go pray. And uh, they use kettle pots to muffle their voices. But the other thing they used, the reason why I carry this blanket, this blanket was actually made by a former slave. There's a family that lets me take this blanket with me around the country. And that's one of the other ways that slaves kept their prayer meetings <coughs> from being heard. They would take wet blankets with them. And they would uh, build a little tabernacle. And they believed that the wet blankets deadened the sound as they prayed. They called it hush harbors. So they'd make these little hush harbors, and they'd get there, and they would pray. All right, so that was a story that was passed down in the family with this. So, anyway. so think about this, though. Mm -hmm. Acts 17 says that from one blood God made everybody, right? And that he determines the times and the places that we would live. And then it says that it has a reason. It says that, uh, that we might look for him and find him, yeah, though he is not far from all of us, because in him we live and move and have our being. The actual language is more interesting than that, than that though, because it says that he places us in a time and in a place. And the, actual, the better translation says that we might grope for him. And so if you could picture, like, it's more like, you know, you can't see where you're going, but you're groping and you're feeling your way to find Jesus. This is actually what the slaves would do. They, they couldn't let anybody know that they were going out into the woods 
And so whoever was first would just grab the rushes and bend the branches in the direction of the prayer meeting. And so you would grope your way through the woods at night and you would feel the direction that the branches are bent. And that's what would lead you to the prayer meeting. Isn't that powerful? Wow. I love the insights this guy gets. But anyway, it's kind of not fair, but it's cool. Man, and, uh, so I've been sharing that story since 2001, going around the country, you know, talking about how, hey, you know, with this pot where they use it for an acoustic means to keep their voices from being heard. But literally, there's a prayer bowl over everybody's family. There's a prayer bowl over our communities. There's a prayer bowl over our nation. And God wants a new generation to resource the prayer bowls. Yeah. Once again, Revelation 5 and 8, bowls, the golden bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, right? So I was sharing that for years, and then... Um, Again, just giving the synopsis again. Uh, sharing that for years, and in 2004, I had this crazy dream with Dr. King in it, and uh, where the Lord began to deal with my own heart about things I need to re you know, forgive regarding the race issue. And uh, my friend Lou Engle asked me to share that dream at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day and have a prayer meeting that day, but then speak in a conference that night, January 17th. So, um, and so that's where I meet this guy, named uh, Matt, Matt Lockett, <laughs> uh, who was also led to the same gathering because of a dream. So we thought, what a cool coincidence. We've been friends now about 15 years. But four years ago, Matt found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. And we thought, what a cool coincidence. Here I have this pot where people prayed underneath it for freedom. In your house, this house and your family became an answer to my forefather's prayers. Artifact. Yeah, it's cool artifacts. You have this house, you have this uh, kettle. So we thought, what a cool coincidence, until we stumbled on our research, and we found out that it was his family who owned our family where this kettle pot came from. Wow. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial <laughs> on MLK Celebration Day to the very place where Dr. King said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit together at the table of brotherhood. So that's the, the short story of it. So that's, that's what brought us together. But, uh, and today we want to kind of unpack some of the stuff we've learned in our journey of like from 2001, me first carrying the pot all the way up to now. We've learned a lot along the way and um, God's revealed, even just a lot through, through our own hard work, in our hard workings with this, about where we are right now in the country and what we, so we just want to share with you what we've learned mm -hmm. along the way. That good? Let me interject something else. Yep. Um, Will was talking about the slave narratives that, that talk about pots, barrels, holes in the ground, wet blankets, things like this to conceal the prayer meetings. But do we have any revival junkies in the room? Okay, there's a few of you. We could use a few more. <laughs> Has anybody in here studied the Azusa Street Revival? Right, that's, that's a very well-known revival. Um, really one of the, the, really the key central figure of the Azusa Street Revival was a one-eyed African-American man named William Seymour. But are you familiar with the peculiar way that William would pray? Why don't you tell him about that? Will? Yeah, so William Seymour uh, in the Azusa Street Revival, he's a very humble man and uh, he, he used to like to pray with a, he'd take a, like an apple cart or box crate or whatever and he'd stick it over his head. They'd take a wooden crate and stick it over his head and he'd pray because he, he didn't want the tension drawn to him, I guess, during the times of the, of the revival, because the glory of God would be so thick in the room. Uh, you know, we have smoke machines. We have that. 
I like the smoke smoke machines. I don't want anything that's going to remind me of the atmosphere of heaven. I just don't want to settle for that yeah, because, because yeah, man, listen, at the Azusa Street Revival, they said that the glory of God would come in real thick like a cloud, so much so that William Seagmore could take his foot and swirl it around with his feet. <laughs> they said children used to play hide and seek in the glory. That's how thick it would be. And when it got thick like that, they would, uh, he knew it was time for, for healing. So there was one man who, this, here's the kind of crazy miracles that happened at Azusa Street. There's one man, he came in, he got his fingers sawn off at the mill. Four fingers, he's, he's like this. So instead of taking him straight to the hospital, they took him first to <laughs> the prayer meeting. That, don't you want to be known for that to where something happens in the city? Oh, oh my God, let's go to, to J-Hop first, right? <laughs> but anyway, so he... When you see more praise for him in front of everybody's eyes, his fingers come back right in front of everybody. Right, that extraordinary. One other miracle that's that's like special effects, man. That's yeah, like I know. Like, <laughs> no CGI, just you know, <laughs> Avengers couldn't pull that off. But anyway, so um, the other one that was really notable, there was a, a Jewish man who came to refute the Zeus Street revival and just talk about you know, write something up against it, talk about how you know off it was or whatever. He was an unbeliever. And uh, he, he came to the gathering, and they had a little prayer meeting uh, there that, that afternoon. They were going to have a, a public meeting that night. So he gets there for the, just right after the, 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 the prayer meeting stopped, and this little girl, about 13 years old, turns to this man, and she, she begins speaking in another language in front of everybody, right in front of him, and pointing to this man and talking to him. And he just begins to crumple and cry. Later on, he, he asked for the micro, well, microphone, asked for the place to just share what happened. He said, this little girl doesn't know me, and y'all don't know this, but she spoke to me in perfect Yiddish. She told me my name, my first name, my last name. She told me why I was here. She told me things about my life that no one else knew. Now I know that what's happening here is real, and I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah, I think they call that the breaker anointing or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what happened. But Azusa Street was interesting because you had people of all different nationalities and races there. Uh, Native Americans were, were, were a central part of it. the Asian community. I mean, red, yellow, black, and white. It was, and the thing that marked it was the love and the unity of the brethren. William Seymour actually said that the, the greatest sign and wonder at Azusa Street was not speaking in tongues. It was the love and the unity amongst the brethren. Wow. So think about it. It's 1905, 1906. Um, you know, we, we like to hug each other as soon as we greet each other. Guys, hey, how you doing? We give each other a hug. That's not what they did back then. You wouldn't even shake anybody's hand unless you knew them very, very well. Right? So people were very little bit standoffish. But when they came to Azusa Street, visitors would come. They would see red, yellow, black, and white all hugging each other, praying for each other, leaning over each other, speaking. It to, I mean, that's, that was the powerful thing that happened there. But the interesting thing about William Seymour, he, he's praying under these crates his mother and father were slaves in Louisiana wow. and we always wonder and I talked to Vincent Sinan who's like one, the one of the foremost um, historians of the Azusa Street revival he's done has probably more documentation than anybody on this he recently um, retired from uh, Regent University amazing man amazing revival historian but uh, we were talking about this and he said you know it could be that Seymour learned to pray underneath a box crate because he heard the stories of how the slaves prayed in secret underneath kettle pots. So, just thought that was an interesting little yeah. tidbit. Yeah.
What do you want to do? <laughs> That's it. Amen. Let's stand. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to talk about something else that was going on at the same time. At the same time as Seymour. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You have a... You have this graphic. There's a graphic back there with a young man. We gave a, a little slide presentation. It's only got like five slides in it. Uh, if you could put up the first image. Perfect. Yeah. That'd be great. This gentleman is Oda Bing. I'm going to have to make kind of a segue. We'll circle back to this, I promise. But that's Oda Binga. Oda Binga was an amazing, um, we would call him like an a, like a animal whisperer. You know, he, he was an amazing animal trainer uh, back during this time period. Uh, it was around 1904, 1905, 1906. He was in Africa, and uh, he was part of a particular tribe where they filed their teeth or whatever. But he <coughs> he just had this amazing way of training everything from uh, uh, to uh, elephants or other animals. He was an amazing animal trainer. Well. It was a, a man who was a missionary who was part of the eugenics society. What's, what's a eugenics society? Uh, a eugenist. What's a eugenist? A, eugenics is just a sophisticated name for a racist. Uh, uh, people who are eugenists believe that populations grow uh, geometrically and food supplies grow arithmetically. In other words, there's not going to be enough food for the people who they feel deserve to be here. And uh, they actually believe that uh, not only was race uh, something that could be, uh, like the color of your skin, whatever your race, could be dysgenic. Like if you were African American, that's dysgenic. Jewish, dysgenic, or whatever. That, that's what these elitist people thought at that time period. But they also thought that anyone who was poor, that it was just inherent for you to be poor. Um, or if someone was uh, uh, mental disabilities or whatever. But beyond that, even poverty, they consider that as something that was inherent and is passed on through succeeding generations. So their desire was to proliferate the people that they thought were the good genes or eugenic good gene people and try to sequester or get rid of the people that had the quote unquote dysgenic genes. That makes sense. So this missionary was part of that, part of that movement. And um, he said, you know, I could take him back to America and use him as an example of how African Americans are closer to animals, uh, closer to apes and monkeys on the evolutionary scale. So he did that. He brought, he, he deceived Odabinga, told him he was, wanted him to uh, use his animal training skills there in the, in the States, but really he was going to put him on display. So he put Odabinga on display at the World's Fair. At the World's Fair. And there were other pastors and leaders at that time who said, no, this is, uh, this is horrible. Uh, what you're really doing is this some kind of uh, social, uh, social project or whatever. This is social Darwinism. And you're just trying to uh, uh, make it seem that black people are, are closer to apes and monkeys on the evolutionary scale. And then someone came along and said, you know what? You're right. This is an educational display. So a man named Madison Grant, who was over the Bronx Zoo at the time, he was on the board of the Bronx Zoo, Madison Grant is an interesting figure. He's part of the eugenics movement. He actually wrote one of the first books on scientific racism called The Passing of the Great Race. The Great Race, of course, for him was Caucasians. And uh, it was in that book that he tried to give a scientific reason why black people and other races were inferior to whites. But he was over the Bronx Zoo, so he buys Odabinga from, um, from the World's Fair and puts him on display in the Bronx Zoo. Here, here in New York. So this is actually from here, that yeah. picture. Yep. 
and he was on display there and actually live in a cage with an orangutan. As a slave, essentially, he was purchased. This is not during the time of slavery. This is 1906. He's in a cage. He's in a cage. And uh, up to 40,000 peop uh, 40, people a weekend would come to see Odobenga in this cage. He's just totally just dehumanized, totally treated, you know, uh, in this way. And uh, Madison Grant, of course, was that person of the Bronx who brought him in. And later on, Odobenga, he finally gets out, but he, he was so depressed from about his treatment, he shot himself in the heart and he died. Yeah. Right. And but the interesting thing is that the other people who loved that book by Madison Grant, well, one was of course Hitler. He loved his book. And when uh, when he died, they saw that book by his by his bedside. Then the other person who uh, told people to read Madison Grant's book was a lady named Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was another eugenist. She was over um, the, this, this organization called the Birth Control Review. Her friend Havelock Ellis came along and said, "Hey, you know." Why don't you change the name of your organization to Planned Parenthood? So she did. So she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Her first clinic was in Harlem, and her, she had an agenda towards controlling the population of you know, minorities, specifically African Americans. But she was the one who pushed forward that, that whole agenda. But it's interesting. So it's 1905, 1906. So here's one man there in, in, at Azusa Street in the middle of his calling, and the, the other one is in a zoo. This is happening at the same time. At the same time. Do you time. understand what he's saying? That 1906, on one coast, you have a man leading a revival and declaring that the color line is washed away in the blood. And at the same time, you have this man in a cage being called a monkey, essentially. Yeah. So this is why uh, you, you begin to hear African-American leaders during that time period come against dehumanization. You know, any kind of caricatures of African-Americans uh, dehumanizing them. So uh, you would see cartoons later on come out with African Americans looking like monkeys or apes or whatever, and people will rail against that. And rightfully so, because if you can dehumanize somebody, it's, easily, it's easier to marginalize them to the place of elimination. All right? So <coughs> you see that there, but then um, also uh, we saw, see it actually happen today, too. Remember H&M? Uh, Granted, they're from what, what? What country are they? Like Norway? But they're Swedish. So maybe they didn't. Maybe I give them a kind of a, kind of a pass, maybe because maybe they didn't know. But they threw up this ad, and they had a, a, a young African kid, uh, maybe like 12 years old. He had a, a hoodie T-shirt on that said uh, "Coolest Monkey in the Jungle." All right. So I was about to give him a total pass on that, but then I was like, ah, maybe a partial pass because the guy, the, the the picture next to him was of a white kid about the same age which had a, a t-shirt on that said uh, jungle survival expert. So you wonder if there's a mixed thing going yeah. on. Of course, LeBron James, other people, Jay-Z, they, they blasted that, and rightfully so, because when you can start dehumanizing people, it's easier to marginalize them to the place of elimination. But the reason why people started fighting for that was because of what happened to Odabenga. And I, I mentioned that because the pink elephant with the, in the room when it comes to the race issue is eugenics. You know, Margaret Sanger didn't just want to uh, stop the furtherance of the people she thought they were dysgenic through, um, through just sterilization and abortion. She also wanted to, uh, she also had an agenda to start mass incarceration. That was part of the eugenics agenda as well. Right? So when you look at all those different things when people talk about systemic racism, they all kind of circle back to 
the eugenics movement, which is still around today. Just to kind of tie it back into the subject of revival, we have to <clears throat> we have to be eyes wide open on this subject right now. And and I'll just kind of say this up front. I mean, you're probably already feeling it. Like this this starts touching on some really sensitive issues. I don't think it does anybody any favors to tap dance around this. You know. Like, I, I think we need to kind of, like, look at it for what it is. We need to understand the history better. And part of the history that's connected specifically to Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger was her partnership with the church. And a lot of people don't understand this, but specifically as this agenda began to be articulated and the plan took shape, what they recognized is there, were, uh, there was a very large population of African Americans, especially concentrated in the South, in the years after the Civil War, during the Reconstruction years, the big question in the nation was, what are we going to do with all these black people? And so the eugenics come along at the turn of the century, at the beginning of the 20th century, and this is the first time we have a crafted agenda and a plan to answer that question. Yeah. And so she... Let me, just, let me say something real quick. See, what most people don't know, there were 33 states that had eugenic sterilization laws. Across the, across the country during this time period. And so as that plan is taking shape, one of the things that she did that is just horrendous, and, and it's, a, it's a diabolical plot out of the pit of hell, is that she saw a love of religion. And so she went particularly to the South and said, hey, love what you're doing with this tent revival. I will financially sponsor your tent revival. I'll foot the bill for it if you have your people come through my tent first. And in her tent was all the information they needed about sterilization. So she's, there's a partnership that develops between the African-American church and Planned Parenthood that is diabolical. There is roots here that we need to understand that, that it wasn't just like, oh yeah, we get a great you know, church meeting. It's that there was an agenda behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So. Where does she want to go with this? Can we just pray for a minute? Yeah. <laughs> Father, we just come before you right now, Lord. And Lord, we do want to have our eyes wide open and we want our spirits to be open today to what uh, you want to do. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear. And Lord, we do want to be a, a people with a prophetic edge and an insight into culture mm -hmm. and into uh, uh, the agendas of uh, 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 demons, Lord, that are manipulating people. Uh, Lord, we don't treat any human as our enemy, mm -hmm. but we recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against yeah. principalities and powers. God, I pray that that would be uh, uh, made very clear today. Lord, that no man, no woman is our enemy, but we do have an enemy of our soul that seeks to destroy the imago Deo in us, that seeks to destroy the image of God in the earth. So, Lord, we just ask uh, for your help. Send the helper to help us today. Send your spirit even here this morning, God, that this afternoon that that we would uh, be able to, to, to break through... Uh, uh, the resistance, uh, Lord, break through the, the things in our own hearts, God, where we, we have opinions and, and things that uh, just offenses, Lord, old, old, old offenses. 
God, I pray that you would help us to break through those things, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that, um, I think, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about what we've done with sessions like this in other places. Uh, we, we, haven't, we don't do them a whole lot because usually we have just a limited time where we have, you know, just really just enough time to tell our story and, uh, and do a little bit of ministry. But we love having a sort of a follow-up time like this where we can kind of just gather as a family, you know, and, and, and talk shop a little bit because um, Will and I had to, we, we had to go through a real wrestling uh, yeah. with our past yeah. in this. And, and so one of the things I wanted to, to bring up again, we, we talked about this a little bit last night, but for those of you who weren't here, uh, what Will explained about how we've made this discovery that it was actually, you know, when you go back generations, we found out that it was my family who owned his family as slaves. That story, that discovery is not the thing that connected us and it's not why we're sitting here today. So Bill and Tammy have known, you've known uh, me for years. You've known Will for years. You've actually seen and, and you've witnessed us go through the process of this discovery where for me, I was invited uh, uh, into a storyline that God was telling, particularly uh, for the ending of abortion in America. And I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't even interested in it. Maybe you can relate to that. Um, but I got kind of thrust into it, had a yes in my heart, respond to the Lord. And, and uh, I've been uh, uh, at the Justice House of Prayer down in Washington, D.C. for almost 15 years now. And so uh, met Bill and Tammy along the way. And they've seen uh, how we've how the story has emerged. So the, the big twist to this is that Will and I were friends and had been praying together uh, for about a decade before we found any of this out. And, and I think that there's two key elements here that, that I want us to understand. One, that Will and I met in a prayer meeting. And I don't think that was an accident. Because there are no accidents. No one's an accident. Will and I met in a prayer meeting... And then God let us build a relationship together for about a decade to grow in, in love for one another. I love this man. I love his family. I fight for his dreams. He fights for my dreams. And uh, that developed over a decade before then God, I don't know, it's like he just lifts the curtain and says, let me show you something else I've been working on for a while. <laughs> and we discover this story that goes back generations you know, 150, 200 years. You know, I think we probably needed the 10 years of Absolutely. friendship as a, as a, as a foundation. Because, I mean, I went through a pretty rough patch, and he mm -hmm. saw me squirm my way through that <laughs> and helped me, you know, walk, walk through that time period. It was a really rough time period for me. And, but all, that, all those life experiences and then, you know, building the trust and all that, I think that was the foundation for us to get the reveal on this stuff. Yeah, in a, I mean, we'll never know, but I honestly don't think if we'd found this out earlier, I don't know if we could have survived it, to be honest, because there would have been some really big questions and some hurts there that we would not have been capable of dealing with. And, uh, you know, for Will, you know, Will had gone through a process of, of healing and uh, uh, forgiveness through the years. I mean, he's been telling this story since 2001. 
and uh, uh, but then we get to this this decade reveal where it's like, oh wait a minute, I was that guy. <laughs> and Sucks the, to be you. Right. <laughs> but the way you know, I like the way Will says it is like he he then had to enter into a whole new level of forgiveness on this thing that that he didn't know that he needed, where he's now having to try to figure out uh, and forget why I was ever his enemy. How, how is it you say it? I like how you say yeah, it. I got it. I got it from Jason Upton. <laughs> Jason Thief. Upton has this amazing song called uh, The Table. And during this time, we're getting all this stuff about, you know, the table of brotherhood. It's a 17 minute long song. I'm thinking this is a John 17 song. To the prophetic, everything's prophetic. Sometimes pathetic. That's true. <laughs> but this one was. But he has this phrase in the middle of that song. He says, I'm sitting at the table of the Lord, and I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever my enemy. And I said, wow, that's, that's mad enough, man. I'm sitting at this table, the one that Martin Luther King, you know, spoke of, <laughs> sitting, at this, sitting at this table, and I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever my enemy. That was for a year and a half. We didn't find out that Matt had an abolitionist in his family until a year and a half later. So God let us sit in that spot for a year and a half. Like, so, you know, because I think we have a tendency to just want to gloss over things, whitewash it, like everything's fine, it's cool, we're cool, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. We're good, right? I'm good, Let's just good. get over it. And then you move on, and then, you know, that's, that's like one of those things where you wander in the desert, you find out you just went in a circle and you end up right back where you started, right? And, and so God let us sit right on that spot and wrestle and wrestle and wrestle together. But, you know, honestly, most of it was individually. Because yeah. for me, I, again, you know, like I said last night, we're prophetic folk. We're in the prayer movement. Like, oh, my God, this is so cool. It's so wowie zowie. <laughs> the sizzle wears off for like, you know, six months, seven months. You're like, dude, your people are my people. You know, <laughs> what about Uncle Willie? You know, that whole thing. And so you, I'm in that place. So you know what I had to do? One, beyond just, yeah, and I need to forgive again. But in that level of forgiveness and going to that level of forgiveness, I had to understand what it was like, as best I could, to be acculturated into 300 years of slavery. Like, what, what was it like to be a white person that was acculturated into slavery? And read a Bible that talked about the exodus and the freedom of the Jews, but then saw these same scriptures being used to keep another people in bondage. And then you had this other minority, this remnant group of radicals called the abolitionists, who are using your same Bible to fight for the freedom of people who didn't look like them. I mean, so much so that they were willing to lay their lives down for them I mean, and be killed. One of them, my favorite one was this guy named Elijah P. Lovejoy. Elijah P. Lovejoy in this town in Alton, Illinois, a slave was beat to death. Nobody cared about it. So that, that white preacher became an abolitionist. He bought one of the first printing presses, used the modern technology that he had that, at that time, and he started writing up and printing abolitionist material, and people began to shift from slavery wow. to abolition because he was such a prolific and powerful, powerful uh, mm -hmm. communicator. Except for a few angry mobs of people who owned slaves, they would come to his house and they would threaten his life. Uh, then they went in and destroyed his printing press. He ordered another printing press they went to the post office before it could be delivered to Elijah B. Lovejoy's house. They went to the post office and destroyed it before it could be delivered to his house. So, and then they threatened his life again. 
and Elijah P. Lovejoy goes before the city council, and he's standing before him, and uh, he says to the mayor and to the city council, look, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens. I need you to protect me from these angry mobs. And they said, sir, you know, your protection would just would be for you to stop printing what you're printing and saying what you're saying and writing what you're writing. And Elijah P. Lovejoy, I love this, he stands before him, he begins to weep, and he says, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. He said, I cannot stop doing what I'm doing because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man, I fear God. And if I fall, my grave should be made here in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. And that powerful, his words proved prophetic the next day an angry mob came to his house, burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. Elijah P. Lovejoy. But that's where I begin to get this understanding that, man, these people were fighting for their brothers and sisters who were in slavery because I'll they knew they were united because of the blood of Jesus. I'll, I'll throw in, and we don't yeah. talk about this guy very much, but I, I talked about last night how we discovered that there was a Methodist circuit writer, oh. abolitionist, in my family. But uh, you have to understand, like, it's, put yourself, it's in, like, the mid-1800s. Yeah. Slavery... Like the the abolitionists have been preaching for about ninety years, um, but but what's developing is a tearing in the nation of opinion, and the question really bef that's facing the nation is how long will you halt between these two opinions? Okay, so uh, we know the war broke out in 1861, but sort of the precursor to that was what happened with the Methodist Church, and uh, which split. While their roots were in abolition, in 1844, the Methodist Church split north and south so that the southern Methodist churches could own slaves. Before that point, you could not be a Methodist minister and own slaves. It was forbidden, wow. like by, by church law. But in 1843, there was a, a particularly zealous group of circuit riders that splintered off of the, West, uh, the Methodist Church and this is the beginning of the Wesleyan Church. Anybody ever been a part of the Wesleyan Church? I actually got saved in the Wesleyan Church back in 1986. 1843, they split. Orange Scott, Reverend Orange Scott, is the sort of the, the leader of this group. And they begin to send circuit riders into the South, all the way down into like South Carolina, to begin to preach an abolition message. And they, they start a church called Freedom Hill Church. And there were derogatory nicknames given to that church. I'll let your imaginations run wild there. You can look it up on your own. Uh, because it was a church that welcomed both uh, white and black. And so basically these angry mobs that Will's talking about, they came and they would, they would either threaten and run those preachers out, which would then be replaced by new ones. They would rotate them in. But Orange Scott was actually seized and he was dragged out of his home, away from his family, and taken to the nearest tree and strung up on a rope. And they hung him, and they thought he was dead. And he remembered hearing, we need that rope so we can hang more of them. So they cut him down and left his body there, but he wasn't dead. So he gets up, returns home, and he keeps preaching. <laughs> That's powerful. I love that story. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead. Yes. So, um, yeah, so, okay. So tomorrow at 2 o'clock, we're going to St. John's Methodist Church, which is around the corner. 
And in their basement, there is a museum of the Methodist revival. And that was one of the first churches, even in New York, that allowed black people and white people together. But you, are you, I don't know if you're able, either one of you or both of you, and then we get, I don't know, but just to go around that museum and just actually see, you know, there's artifacts in there of the circuit riders, of, of different things, even little box where they would stand up and preach, you know, so it's, it's all tied in. It's yeah. it's real. It's the same time frame. It's the earlier 1800s. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. Something coming there. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's great. So, so you had these radical abolitionists, and then you had other people who are wavering, and so you have to understand. You have these folks who are in the middle of this whole thing, and like, ah, oh, where do I stand in this? Then you had a guy like Freeborn Garrison. Freeborn Garrison was born into a family that, that owned slaves. The revival's going on at the same time, right? And so he gets saved at the revival during the first great awakening, and he comes into his family prayer meeting, and he says, it was for, free, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, all the slaves I've just inherited, just inherited, I'm setting them all free. And Freeborn Garrison becomes this, you know, uh, itinerant, traveling, circuit rider. He goes to Delaware and preaches, and there's a slave there who gets saved named... Um, I don't know what, anyway, Richard Allen, ta-da, on to the bonus round. Richard Allen gets saved. <laughs> I'll take Rich the circuit writers for 200 I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Richard Allen gets saved, and he and Freeborn Garrison start preaching the gospel together. Not as a, he's not working as a servant for Freeborn Garrison. They're working together in the gospel, preaching black and white all across the country, right? And then uh, Freeborn Garrison goes back shares the gospel with uh, William uh, Richard Allen's uh, slave master, he gets saved. So then he sets Richard Allen free, and eventually he winds up starting the AME church. Wow. So that, but anyway, that's how you see revival and all these things run together. But, so you had people like that, but then also you had people who were part of the Confederacy who were Christians, but they were fighting this war at the same time, they were struggling with this whole thing. So you have this nuance of all this stuff going on. So, I mean, like, is the many, is, as soon as you say Confederate, somebody was a Confederate, you can't say, just overly dismiss their history and who they are and what they were about. Maybe they're still on the wrong side of history at that, at that particular point, but you gotta remember, like Matt's family, we have this one uh, man named uh, Samuel, Samuel Lockett, right? And uh, Samuel Lockett, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he, he was a, Colonel for the Confederacy, but at the same time, this guy was brilliant. I mean, there, there's actually a building at LSU named after him. He was a professor at LSU. Um, he uh, worked as like a CIA kind of agent for other. He's an engineer. Engineer, and he worked on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, so <coughs> you can't just dismiss everything about you know the folks in the history just because of where they particularly stood. And then you had folks like uh, Robert E. Lee again, another person with these credible nuances like he was of course on the losing side but do you know that when they had the time for the unconditional surrender April 9th 1865 there at uh, Appomattox he refused to wear his Confederate battle uniform because he wanted to unite the country wow. he made he made them even take down the the Confederate battle flag and it, he said it was not to be flown anymore we have one flag now that's the one that's going to unite our country right and so that that was that was his heart um, he also uh, 
was in a prayer meeting once. There was a prayer meeting, and uh, not a prayer meeting, it was a church service, and a black man walked into that church service and wanted to take communion. And many of the white people there didn't want to you know, serve him communion or they'll be there with him, didn't want him in the church at all. But Robert E. Lee came down to that communion altar and served that man communion, and they took communion together. Wow. All right. But then, yeah, Robert E. Lee, other times, is quoted as saying that he didn't believe black people had a soul. <laughs> so these were people who were incredibly nuanced, working through their own struggle of what's going on with this whole slavery thing, and well, how are we going to work together? I, so that's what you had going on in those time periods. So you can't, like, like we, what, what we love to do is just talk about the good parts of somebody or the, all the bad parts of the people. No, the Bible talks about all the good and the bad. <laughs> David was a man after God's own heart, but what about that Bathsheba thing and the whole thing with Uriah the Hittite and Kevin who killed? You know, we got to talk about it all so we can understand not just the narrative that we like to portray. There's a meta-narrative. It's the God narrative that's over all this stuff. We got to see this stuff through that lens. I, and I think one of the things that writing this story, we, we've written a book about this called The Dream King. One of the things that really kind of got highlighted to us is really, that was not a shameless plug. <laughs> that this whole thing about narrative, like that's a real popular term right now. You hear this constantly, but, but America's in a storytelling crisis right now there is a war over who is going to have control over the story in our nation it really is a story of control yep. and so this is this is really like you feel it no you feel the tension like what's right what's wrong and it's like you feel like factions that have formed and they have they have a narrative that they push and then you know it's happening in the universities it happens in the marketplace it's non-stop uh, that is, it's designed to bend us to that narrative, and there's so much more to it. And I think that what we have to get a hold of as the people of God is this meta narrative that Will's talking about. What is the story that God's telling? Because I know where that story goes. I and I got a good hunch where uh, the world's story leads, but I know where God's story leads. You know what I mean? Because it, it, His story is a story of redemption. It's littered with mistakes, not godly mistakes. I'm saying the mistakes of people, right? It's yeah. the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I know that God's telling a story of redemption. And so that regardless of how bad the situation is in the nation or the nations, we know the end of the story, right? Like, I feel like it's very important for us to understand. I just wanted to interject that real quick. Yeah, you know, I think we need to go here. We're going to go there at first. But let's talk about one of the ways, like, even with the Civil War, you know, the South lost the lost the war, but then they, they tried to win the narrative, right? Many yeah, let's did. do this. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's 1915, 1915, um, Ku Klux Klan, it's been like dormant, probably almost died out 60, 70 years. Nobody's flying up any Confederate flags. That They haven't seen that for almost 100 years. Then there's this interesting movie that comes out called The Birth of a Nation. And The Birth of a Nation was this Do you know, movie. who knows what that movie is? I heard some ahas. Yeah. Oh, right. okay. Right. Now, if you, I know we probably got a, how many of y'all are film students or been to film school, right? Yeah, did you study The Birth of a Nation in film school? Right, yeah, it's the first movie to have close-ups and other stuff. It was a silent film. First movie to be screened in the White House. Yep, yeah, D.W. Griffith was, was the uh, director who put it together. But here's the thing, that movie was all about the glorification of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> 
and how they were like the saviors of the South during the Reconstruction period and put Af African Americans in a really ugly light. And uh, <clears throat> because one of the reasons why, like, went, in our words, viral, was because it was uh, the first movie, like you said, to be uh, shown, at, shown at the White House. And uh, a lot of people say that uh, the, uh, was it Woodrow Wilson was the president, I believe. But they said he didn't even see the film, but he gave it this glowing endorsement because he knew uh, some of the producers. Yeah, the filmmaker was a friend, so. Yeah, so he, he said this is the kind of thing that can reinvigorate the American spirit. This is what we, this is what the nation needs to reconnect us to our history. Yes, that's exactly what he said. So, so this, this movie starts to birth the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan, all right? Did I say it right that time? I say Ku Klux Klan sometimes. Ku Klux Klan. It's Ku Klux Klan. Do you have the slide presentation from last night still? Can you, do you mind, can you switch over to that one and go to the very last slide? I'd appreciate that, thank you. Yeah, so 1915, um, the, they're gonna show this movie in Atlanta, right? And so there was this uh, minister there at the time who decides to restart the Ku Klux Klan. A Methodist week. minister. A Methodist minister, of all things. Uh, to restart the Ku Klux Klan right then, and so he goes to the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia. That's, that's Stone Mountain right, right. there. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard about it. Yeah. And he burns a cross on top of Stone Mountain, and they, 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 they re, the Ku Klux Klan reemerges, in other words, that year, 1915. That's the first time they ever burned a cross. Wow. Yep. So after being dormant for you know, 60, 70 years, they reemerge because of this movie. And <coughs> really, you start, see, you start seeing lynchings and cross burnings happen all throughout the South all over again. This, this reign of, of terror starts all over again. The first person they lynched uh, at Stone Mountain was a Jewish man. And then the next one was, a, was African, African American man. We're right there at Stone Mountain in Georgia. So anyway, all that to say, um, it was around that same time period that some people in the South, you, you explain this part better than I do. Talk about the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Hotel. You ever heard of this organization called Daughters of the Confederacy? So in, in, it, like that movie, it really sort of like, it either created or it seized upon the zeitgeist of that moment in time right then where there was, there was sort of a latent tension in the culture and it was a determining moment. What is the direction that the nation's gonna go? And they seized upon that, that sentiment in the South in particular. And so you, the, they used that movie to reemerge, the KKK reemerged in the nation in force and then, so uh, beginning in 1915, really 1913, 1914, so that window of just a few years, the Daughters of the Confederacy began to write a narrative, uh, a storyline that, that, that elevated the, 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 the Southern role, right? It's like it's an, it was no longer a civil war, it was the war of Northern aggression, okay? And, and they wrote a story and then to, to proliferate that, that uh, storyline throughout the South and you know, further and further north, they began to erect monuments and statues to Confederate heroes and put them in public places as a reminder of, of this storyline. And so not all Confederate monuments are directly connected to this, but I, I have to say this, most of them are. 
And so, right, you see this. This has been a hot button, right, in the culture for the last several years. You know, it's like rip all the Confederate monuments down and scratch all the names off the buildings, right? And, and, and then you have people, like, enraged by that, saying, no, we have to be reminded of this is valuable history and it's a history lesson and we have to teach. you got to drill down deeper, folks, because I just... Can we agree that you can't get good fruit from a bad tree? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so we really, I, I, I'm, I feel really vulnerable right now because some of you are mean mugging me. <laughs> um, like we, we have to get to the root. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them, it was a racist agenda to keep right. this whole idea of white supremacy going throughout the South. And so huge statues of Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee, who, who more than likely, would not have wanted to have a Confederate memorial put up because he's the very person who was who said, "Hey, take the flag down. We're a United Nation." He was trying to heal the divide in the country. He'd probably be the last person to want a statue, especially of himself, up. Right? I'll give you a, a specific example. So everyone's familiar, probably most recently, with the the riot that was down in Charlottesville, Virginia, yeah. right? And that was all centered around this statue right there in a public park. Uh, of uh, Stonewall Jackson. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go and look at the, Will and I have been there, mm -hmm. if you go and look at the inscription on it, it was erected by the Daughters of the Confederacy in 1914. Yeah. So it's what a all, coincidence. All during that time period when it, this, this, this new narrative is being birthed because of this movie, you know, The Birth of a Nation. So, <clears throat> so, so you have a lot of people want to tear those down. And probably, maybe some of them probably need to come down if they were put up for that particular reason. My take on it kind of is like this. Why don't you just put up another statue next to it? <laughs> tell the whole story. Yeah, tell the whole story. I mean, put up a statue next to it of uh, some people praying underneath a kettle pot, <laughs> which brought the demise of the whole thing. Put up another statue of Frederick Douglass or put up another, you know what I'm saying? Like, tell the rest of the story. The story doesn't, doesn't end with this, you know, Rodham Cowboy, Robert E. Lee, you know, on a horse. That's not where the story ends. Tell the rest of the story. And so, you know, maybe they'll turn them all down. Maybe put another statue up next to it. But the th the, what, what we were getting at is this. That was all about trying to put forth an, this whole narrative. But what we have to understand is what's the meta-narrative? What's the meta-narrative from heaven? And how do we partner with God with healing history and this stuff? That makes sense? So the, I, the whole reason Will's bringing that up, that perspective, is I think you have to kind of, like, get real honest and, like, put yourselves in their shoes 150 years ago and what was it like to be uh, you know acculturated into that mindset because it's easy for us to look back and say well if i was there i wouldn't have done it mm. right isn't that what we do you know if i wouldn't have put Odabinga in a cage it's easy to say that but we're we're removed from it and so jesus actually address this. Do you have your Bibles with you? Um, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, <laughs> verse 29. Matthew 23, I'll start in verse 29. Jesus, this is the red letter stuff. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not 
have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Now, let's look at the parallel passage of this. Flip over to Luke 11. It gives us a little more of an understanding. Luke 11, verse 47. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus actually, I think he's addressing this dynamic, and we can understand it this way for now, is that we, we can look back at the time of slavery and say, man, if I, if I was there, I totally would have been a circuit-riding abolitionist. I'm so an abolitionist, right? It's easy to say that. And it's easy to even look at 1906 and say, I can't believe William Seymour's preaching at Azusa and Oda Bing is in a cage. If I was there, I wouldn't have been a part of the wrong side of history. It's the way we kind of like to frame it. He's on the right side of history. This person's on the wrong side of history. That's real common to hear that. But there are consequences and legacies. I talked about this last night that are directly connected to those roots that we are still living in today. There are dynamics in the culture that we're, we're swimming in it right now, and we can't even see it. We can't even recognize it, and we're silent for the most part. The church is silent in many ways, and we refuse to deal with the very things that are connected to those things. And so Jesus is actually addressing this right here. He's like, you think that you wouldn't have done what they did? Here's the picture is that they killed those prophets and they stuck them in the ground and they put up a monument, they put up a gravestone to it, and you come along every year and you whitewash it, right? You paint it white to make it look nice. You're beautifying, you're trying to make it look acceptable and good. And Jesus is actually saying, no, what you're doing is you're, you're condemning yourself because you're, you're, you're demonstrating that you consent to it. And so we have to understand how hard it is to actually swim against the current in the time that we do live in. And you know what I'm saying? It's easy to say, man, if I was in the time of slavery, I wouldn't have owned slaves. Well, would you? You don't, you know, it's, it's hard to answer that question because right now we have, we're living and swimming in the consequences that are directly connected to those times, and yet we refuse to swim against the current right now. Does that make sense? He wants me to keep going. <laughs> I just have a lot of passion about this, guys, and, and um, our heart, see, he was going to say something because my <laughs> eyes were closed. <laughs> our heart is to, uh, I think in particular, if you were here last night, you know that our story, our lives are woven together, but the story the, the tapestry that God has woven as he's turned it around and shown us, given us glimpses of the picture. You didn't talk about that last night, but, you know, it's like God's weaving a tapestry. 
most of the time, the tapestry of our lives, you know, we're staring at the backside and it just looks like a knotted mess and it doesn't make any sense. But there are moments when God says, let me show you what I'm working on. And he turns around and you get to see the picture of what he's weaving. And, and, and this, this is how he does it. And, he, and, he, and our, our individual lives and stories are woven together with each other's lives and stories. And so this, the story that Will and I are telling, this is just one little piece of where God said, let me show you something. And he's turned it around. And we've seen how our lives have been woven together, not just for the last 15 years, but for the last 200 plus years. And really, I think it's, it is a sign and a wonder of what God is doing among all of us that we need each other more than we realize. We're actually connected more than we realize. We are woven together more than we realize. But for us, it's not just a story about racial healing in America, but it does touch on the life issue. It, it, it touches on the abortion issue. And I had, a, I had a little moment with the Lord this morning. I'm going to get really emotional. I'm staying at the hotel just a couple of blocks down here, and I had some free time this morning. Thank you very much. And so I just went out walking around. And, you know, I, I've never been to the 9-11 memorial. And um, so I, I, I walked over there. I was, I was by myself. And uh, I just wanted to see it. And I'm sure everybody in this room has been over there. And, and you know, it's, if you go with the right attitude, it's, it's pretty heavy. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to walk up and you see people taking selfies, smiling and stuff. And it's like... You know, uh, you know what I mean. So I walk up to look at it, and you know how you can't really see the memorial, the fountain, without seeing the people, right? So all the names are etched in bronze, and you have to almost, you have to kind of like lean over to to look down into this moment in history. And I, uh, if you could flip back to the the other uh, presentation. I went up there and I, I put my hands on the bronze and I looked over into the fountain and I was just staring and then I looked down and I didn't plan it. This is what was under my hands. Is, is uh, this woman's name here, Vanessa Lang Langer and her unborn child. And, and, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but there, uh, there are 11 uh, unborn children memorialized over here at the uh, at the 9/11 memorial, and they're 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 forever going to be remembered in that place. And and that that I I was really tore up about that because if you want to go to the next image, this is looking straight up from that spot. This is One World Trade Center. And go to the last slide here. I'll just show it to you. You're probably all well aware of this. So this was on January 22nd of this year. Uh, Governor Como uh, lit up One World Trade Center pink uh, to celebrate, his own words here, to celebrate the passing of this law that allows New York to uh, abort babies in the womb all the way up until the moment of birth. And I, I, I was so torn up over this. One, it's it, they, New York passed this on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. That was strategic. 
That was to send a message to the world. Um, but two, just go back to the former picture there. Um, uh, sorry, the one in between there. Like th these things are side by side. So you have this memorial that recognizes 11 unborn children forever. And at the same time, you've got One World Trade Center being lit up pink to celebrate the right to kill those babies. Do you see the paradox of this moment? Right? And uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this. I put the pictures in there just because I was very torn up about it. But, but this is an example. I'll just say it that way. It's an example for Will and I. We, we, we cannot escape this topic. We, we, as much as we go into different settings and people say, can you talk about the race issue, but don't talk about that abortion stuff. Yeah, the first time we met, that was my first time sharing my story about abortion. He heard me share that that night. You didn't share that last night. Do you want to tell yeah. that? Yeah, so um, basically I paid for the, the abortion of my first child when I was in my 20s or so. I wish I could say I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I was. You know, abortion is the fig leaf in the church. We use it to cover up our sexual immorality. And so myself and my, yeah, <laughs> it is. Abortion is the fig leaf in the church. We use it to cover up our sexual immorality. And so uh, <clears throat> myself and my little girlfriend at the time period, we, you know, we're both in college. And we didn't say the words. We just said, well, you know, if we ever get in trouble, you know, we use code language like that. Well, okay, we'll do whatever we have to do. We don't want our parents to find out, blah, blah, blah. But uh, so anyway. Uh, we went through with it, and it was it was horrific, yeah. horrific experience. Of course, I went through a lot of inner healing and deliverance after that. You know, finally fully gave my life to the Lord. But I tell you, that day at that clinic, I heard God for the first time, and I heard Him say, "This is not a process. This is a person. Wow. This is not a choice. This is a child." That's what I heard. And uh, my girlfriend came out so fast. I thought I thought maybe she changed her mind, but she said, "No." I went through with it, and um, uh, the doctor just methodically went from room to room to room to perform the procedure. There were girls in the back crying so hard. They didn't allow them to leave out of the front because if they were crying as they left, they knew they would influence the girls in the waiting lounge, so they refused to let them leave until they got themselves together. So we just, you know, so I stuffed that for years, but then actually, you know, went through healing, deliverance. And so the, the, the day that we met. Um, Martin Luther King Day, 2005. Yeah. I was in a prayer meeting that day <coughs> after, after that one. A lot of prayer that day. <laughs> and uh, Spirit of God falls on me. I began weeping uncontrollably, and I'm um, like, what is going on? And uh, the Lord said to me, William, I'm allowing you to mourn the loss of not holding your child in your arms for the first time. And I just kept saying over and over again, God, I miss my baby. And uh, spiritual mama to me, Sonia Jacobs, you know, she said, what's going on? I shared with her. She said, well, have you ever thought about asking the Lord to give you the name of that child? I've, I've done that before with people who had miscarriages, but I never thought about doing that for my own, you know, abortion that I paid for. So we began to pray, and um, we both had the same, same vision. <laughs> we saw this child in heaven, and um, saw it was a boy. She, saw this, she described everything that I was seeing. It was one of those uncanny things. And uh, prayed for a name, and I named him William Lawrence Ford the Fourth. 
So I have a son named William Lawrence Ford IV in heaven. And I believe it's his, his inheritance, part of his inheritance is to see uh, Roe v. Wade. But anyway, yeah. So um, anyway, that night, I, had a, I led a prayer meeting that night. See, 80% of women who have had abortion said that if the man who was part of their pregnancy wanted the, wanted the child, they would have not gone through with it. So I, had, I led a time of repentance for men who had paid for an abortion or they paid for, gave, gave money to a friend to pay for the abortion or pay for the abortion of their own child. And guys just began flooding the altars. People were going through, I mean, mass deliverance was taking place. And we knelt before women and I began to pray for them, ask, asking forgiveness for treating them like a piece of meat and uh, not wanting to be the father of their child. And, doing this identification of repentance thing was so powerful. One of the girls who was there, she actually got healed, and she went back to uh, Atlanta, and she started a prayer meeting, Brown for Life chapter there, uh, prayer meeting in front of an abortion clinic. Of all the 12 abortion clinics she could have gone to, without knowing it, she went back to the very same clinic where I paid for that abortion. And she starts praying there for a time period Sometimes two or three people then wind up, sometimes 30 or 40 people would show up with her to pray. Then one of the girls had a dream, and in the dream, the Lord said, if you'll do this prayer meeting for 40 days straight, this clinic will shut down. So Matt and I, again, we didn't know about the rest of this story. We were just, you know, I was just one of the board members of Bound for Life. We fly to Atlanta, and we seize that Just clinic. to go and join with her and pray. Yeah, join with her and pray. And uh, during that 40-day time period, uh, the uh, security guard who they been who befriended them came to him and said, "Hey, you know what? What y'all doing must be working because this clinic is going to shut down on November 30th." Wow. And November 30th that year, 2007, that clinic shut down. The man who owned that clinic has several other abortion clinics. They all shut down too, because he was exposed for Medicaid fraud. And he's in prison, wow. so all of his clinics got shut down. It started on November 30th when that one got shut down. And November 30th is my birthday. Now, why would God do that on my birthday? Because every person who's conceived deserves to have a birthday. And here's the importance of all this. When the people that we cannot see become optional and they get dehumanized, it's inevitable that other people will be marginalized to the place of elimination. Drill down deeper. Bigger than, it's bigger than black lives matter. It's bigger than all lives matter. This guy saying, drill down deeper. Life matters. So one of, the, one of the things that we need to understand right now, yes. and kind of what I was, the point I was trying to make earlier is that Will, Will and I cannot escape the topic of racial healing and abortion and how those two things are woven together. And as, as God has kind of peeled back the layers of this thing over the years, it's, it's startling when you look at the similarities that are staring us right in the face, where at the time of slavery, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, uh, the slave was dehumanized. It was codified into law that a, that a slave was only three-fifths human, and they only did that so that the South could get more representation in Congress, so that it would bring up the population numbers. But it was codified in law. It's not human. It ha the, the slave has no rights. The slave was property, so that therefore, when the discussion and the narrative is framed as a slave being property, then no one can tell you what you can and can't do with your property, right? You can do whatever you want with your property to the extent that, that, that you know, 
not just in terms of punishment, but you could end the life of a slave and there would be no consequences for that. And, uh, uh, you know, how many of you saw the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce? There was actually a scene in Parliament in that film where they, they highlighted this one argument that was very popular during the time of slavery where uh, people were trying to say that these conditions uh, on the plantations or in the sugarcane fields down, you know, uh, in, in the Indies were, were so severe and, and heinous. And, and the argument was made that uh, Africans were better off as slaves on plantations because the conditions of their lives in Africa were so bad, right? This is just history, folks. That's one of, that's one of the arguments that was made. But now fast forward in the situation that we're dealing with right now with the, concerning the baby in the womb is the argument we say is from the time of the 70s to now, and this, this lack of science is, is just mind-numbing to me that it's still just a clump of tissue, yeah. right? It's not human. So we've dehumanized the baby in the womb, and we've made it uh, the product of conception. We've assigned all this language to it that denies the baby hu its humanity. Therefore, we can do whatever we want to with it and there will not be and there should not be consequences do you see the similarities here even so that that to pull at your heartstrings because this is how it goes guys i've been doing this for a while now and the and the argument where people yell in my face is you call yourself a christian you heartless human being don't you know how bad that child's life would be if they if we allow it to be born into that situation of poverty or a situation of a single parent home or a situation where the mother doesn't have an education, right? So it's like growing up in Africa, right? Oh. You're making this speculation that the quality of their life would be so bad that, that this is more preferable. Do you see? We're just, re we've, we've wandered through the desert thinking we're going in a straight line, but we've wandered back to, in a circle and we're back in the exact same place, saying the exact same things, making the exact same flawed arguments, just so that we can keep perpetuating our sin. And in the whole, the whole time, sorry, I don't mean to stand up and preach at you, but, but the whole thing, Jesus is saying, you think you would have done something different back then? You're doing the exact same thing right now. Yeah, if we were in the time of those people, oh no, we would have never done that. We never would have stoned the prophets. Yeah. You build memorials that testify against you. There's a memorial three blocks from here. <laughs> that memorializes the unborn. And we have laws now that don't, they, they actually put in the Constitution here in New York that, that they have a new definition for, for a person. And it's any person who uh, has been born and is alive. They totally changed it. And it's had ramifications. There was a, a, a man being tried for, for two murders. He, he killed a, a woman in her uh, eight months. She was eight months pregnant. And now he's only being tried for one murder because of that law. But you have a memorial that testifies against it. But at the same time, there's a man who murdered his pregnant wife in Alabama. And he was convicted of a double homicide. And then he appealed that ruling in his case saying, no, 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 the baby in the womb is not a person. So he appealed that. That went to the Alabama Supreme Court. And last year, uh, in o October of 2018, um, 
the Alabama Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the baby in the womb is just as human as that mother. And then the, uh, uh, one of the, the justices on the court, a man named Tom Parker, he's a friend of ours, he wrote uh, a separate opinion saying this ought to serve as uh, evidence to the nation that Roe v. Wade is flawed in its logic and that this case is potentially one of the things, one of the many things that it's on a collision course with, with a court case called Dred Scott. Oh, I'm sorry, Roe v. Wade. Mm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so and, and let me just pitch this in and uh, hold your thought. Is we put up this, the picture of Oda Benga because we're like, can you believe this? That 1906, at the same time, William Seymour and Oda Benga are happening at the same moment. And you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, that's such a stark reality. How long will you halt between two opinions? Will's going to explain that scripture in just a moment. But look what's happening in America right now. Since the, what is this, May? Yeah. Okay, it's May. There have been 250 pro-life bills introduced into state legislatures this year, just in the last five months. And what is happening right now? God gave us a prophetic prayer to pray in 2014, five years ago. And we began to pray and prophesy that America could change in a heartbeat. What is happening right now? These heartbeat bills are popping up all over. Oh, the wisdom of God. Just pray your dreams, folks. The secret hidden wisdom of God. Heartbeat bills are popping up all over. And, uh, and so there's this, this contrast is developing in the nation, right? How can a nation do what happened in New York at the same time as what happened in Alabama this past week? Right. How can those things happen at I the mean, same time? How can William Seymour and Oda Binga happen at the same time? Yeah. Explain that scripture. Yeah, so how long where uh, Elijah has his showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he says to the nation of Israel, he stops from talking to the prophets of Baal. He shifts to the nation of Israel. He says, how long will you hop between two opinions? Baal worship, child sacrifice, all these other things. How long will you hop between two opinions? And uh, Dutch Sheets, I saw him do a teaching on this. It was so powerful. Years ago, he said the best translation for it, literally in the Hebrew, what it, what it really says is, how long will you limp between two opinions? Like somebody who's going th from one place and, and and they hear one opinion and they, they go to the other place and they limp back over to the other place. How long will you limp back and forth? That's what people in pain do. When they're looking for answers, yeah. they limp back and forth between who is shouting the loudest, right? Until healing actually comes. And that's basically where we are right now in our nation. We have a whole nation, what this is, what we're looking at, our nation is wounded. And we're limping back and forth between opinion after opinion to deal with the, our own soul, soul issues that need to be healed. And it's, it's going to take the preaching of the gospel right. to heal it. It's going to take you and I being out in every sphere of influence to become problem solvers to society. I want to I speak a little hope into this, though. Yeah. Because 
it, it's it. I, I don't want there to be a temptation to just hear that and just think like, oh man, the nation is going to rip itself apart. You know, the 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 bad's going to get worse. And the well, you know. yeah. Say, say this right quick too, because the last time we had uh, different moral like stances between the states, what happened? We had a civil war. It was regional morality. No slavery in the North, slavery in the South. And we had to fight for a union so that the nation didn't tear itself apart. I'll be honest with you folks, like, like I have to, uh, like God has, has given me grace to stay out of like the depression mode on this thing because what it looks like on the surface right now is that the nation is moving more and more towards regional morality. Isn't it, isn't it just a twist? that it's the South, it's the flip. But, but I wanted to share a couple of testimonies to just to breathe some courage and encouragement into you because um, I, I just refuse to believe that it's easier to pray in Alabama than it is in New York. Right? Yeah. But I talk to Christians all the time, it's like, well, it's New York. You know, you just got to get used to it. Like, this is just how it is. Well, maybe not. I, I just, <laughs> I don't think it's me being naive. I just believe that we serve a God of miracles Amen. and that he, he raises up kings and he tears them down and that nations can be born in a day. Like, I got Bible verses for that. <laughs> but I wanted to give you a couple of examples. So, uh, uh, for a community like this, and, and probably not everybody in the room is a part of J-Hop or the church, um, but if you're here, you're probably interested in prayer. Or maybe you thought there was a free lunch, and <laughs> now you're disappointed. <laughs> but here's the thing. So it's 2009. The end of 2009, our little team up here, uh, uh, down here in D.C., we were praying, and we felt like prophetically God spoke to us and told us to focus in on this area of southeast Texas around Houston and to pray specifically for Planned Parenthood and this, uh, what's called the Gulf Coast Affiliate. So it's part of Louisiana, and it's Houston, the greater Houston area, and all of southeast Texas. And it was such a strange thing where God's like, I want you to zero in on that and pray for that. And so we prayed, 21, we, 21 we, we, we did a 21-day fast and prayed for that region. And to this day, I don't know if it was on the 21st day or if it was the day after we completed the fast, but this little gal directing a Planned Parenthood right there in the center of where we were praying, her name was Abby Johnson, walked out of that place. Now, the she ended up writing a book called Unplanned, exposing the, the industry, the business of abortion, right? And she's, she's done some amazing things. That book's been sitting uh, on the shelf for eight years, but now it's been made into a film. And they just, were, they just did an event in Times Square, what, two weeks ago. Abby was there. Anybody here attend that? Wonderful. So how many of you have seen the movie Unplanned? Okay, a few of you, I want to encourage you to see it because I kind of feel like it's the Uncle Tom's cabin for this generation. of this time right now. That is, it's exposing uh, people to things that they did not know. And so um, 
we did that 21 day fast. Abby got saved at the end of that. So we're like, that's pretty cool. Let's do it again. <laughs> so we did another 21 day fast right after that. And on the 21st day of that fast, the president of that affiliate went crazy and got institutionalized. Sorry for like, I don't want that language to be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have like the clinical terms, but he yeah. went crazy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but what we did when, when we saw Abby sure. come out, what we did on the second fast was we got a list of all of the, the leaders and all of the people in the organization of that affiliate. And we were praying for them by name, hammering them, God, give them opportunity to turn. And so I believe God gave that man every opportunity. And, and, and maybe yet he's going to have a Nebuchadnezzar experience, you know, where maybe he will go through a season, but then come back. So one other testimony, or do you have something on that? Well, just on that, say the testimony, but Abby, then Abby starts an organization called, and then there were none, which is all about helping people who are in the abortion industry come out and helping them find jobs in other industries. Isn't that powerful? So Since the film came out, over 100 abortion clinic workers have come out of the industry just since the film came out other testimony I'll share is this uh, so uh, five states have passed these heartbeat laws and uh, the most notable one was uh, Alabama here just this last week but the very first state to introduce it was Missouri several months ago and it was introduced and it was passed in the Missouri House now we have uh, uh, chapter Bound for Life chapter leaders in Missouri, based there in St. Louis, but then also uh, acting as uh, regional coordinators for that part of the country. And they just had a, such a great burden to see this thing get through, but it, it stalled out in the Senate. And, uh, and, and it just didn't seem like anything was happening. You ever feel like that way? Like what you know ought to happen, just it just languishes and it just never happens, right? And so they're praying and all of a sudden they're seeing the thing they've been praying for, it's happening in other states, but they're like, God, what about us? And so three weeks ago, um, our chapter leader, she has a dream. And in her dream, she's in labor trying to give birth to something. And she wakes up at 4 a.m. The next night, she has the exact same dream and again wakes up at exactly 4 a.m. So they're like, what do you think we should do? This isn't rocket science, right? So they're like, let's do a night watch and let's get some, uh, uh, you know, people that, that, can, that we can contend with and pray with and let's do a night watch and let's contend for the 4 a.m. hour. And so for three weeks, the last three weeks, they fasted and then would get up. There was only 12 of them, 12 people, guys. God can save by many or by few. Mm -hmm. 12 people would get up and they were contending from 4 to 5 a.m. in prayer for this thing. Well, the Missouri uh, legislative session ended on, it ended uh, Thursday mm -hmm. at 6 p.m. But on Wednesday, they worked through the night and the Senate passed it at 4.01 a.m. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like something could look stuck in the mud like it could look like it's never going to happen. Like the thing that God's put in your heart, there's no chance it could ever happen in New York. No, you know, it's like the Jebusites saying, you'll never get in here. Second Samuel 5, David says, oh, no. Anybody who's going to take 
Jerusalem, the city of David. Oh, David's on the outside and he's saying, that's my city. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? He's on the outside. The enemy's on the inside saying you'll never get in here. And he's like, no, this is the city of David. (laughs) Anybody who's going to take that is going to come in through the secret waterway. There is a prophetic secret waterway for every situation, every dream that God has ever deposited in your heart for New York City. God's got a prophetic secret waterway for you to pray and a path for you to take to see that thing come to pass and to see all of God's promises come true. I'm absolutely convinced that too many of us just turn away and all they got is lame and blind on the wall, (laughs) right? That's what they say. This, even the lame and blind will keep David out of here. He says, no, this is the city of David. What are you guys prophesying over New York city? You know what I'm saying? What are the dreams that God's given you for this place? And you have a, a, a taunting enemy saying, Oh, you Christians, you'll never get in here. You and your Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it seems so petty. You know what I mean? But you hear the taunting. Come on, man. And and it's like God's, I believe God's got a prophetic edge. The dream realm, I believe. We I know you're already doing this, but we have Pray got to dreams. all cultivate a dream realm on a corporate level where you get half of a dream and you get the other half of the dream and God confirms it by the testimony in the midst and then you guys give yourself to contempt. This is what we do. This is how we did what we did in Southeast Texas and look what happened. This is what our group did in St. Louis and look what happened. It was not, it was totally stalled. Nothing was gonna happen in Missouri and then at the moment, 401, it's like I just, in my mind, <laughs> this is my exegesis, right? <laughs> it's like I can just see them all saying, no, no, we're not doing this. We're not, we're not even going to, you know, it's not going to happen. And then 4 a.m. hits. And they all enter into this holy realm where people have been contending and fasting for the last 21 days like Daniel did where the prince of Persia is trying to keep the word of God out and suddenly these legislators come in to a different influence where the purposes of heaven break in. There's no other way to interpret this, folks. You know what I'm saying? Like, you really do. Like, put on your prophetic goggles, man. To the prophetic, all things are prophetic. You know, if you're looking, you'll see it. I'm done. That's powerful. So this all happened to two guys. (laughs) who are led by dreams to the Lincoln Memorial, to the place where Dr. King said, and here's what he fully said, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. One of those Red Hills in Georgia was Stone Mountain. Can you put that Stone Mountain picture back up, please? Yeah, like the very, like, is you got the last one with the crowd or whatever? Yeah. So we got asked to go to, uh, very, very last one of those. We asked to go to uh, do this prayer gathering called One Race. And it was this huge prayer meeting on top of Stone Mountain. Time out. That's the mountain behind us. Yeah. And carved in the side of it is a Confederate monument. It's the largest Confederate monument in the world. Right. Uh, and it's a relief of uh, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, and Robert E. Lee. Yeah. 
So we go back to that place where the, where, the, where the cross was burned down. We went to erect the cross that was stand for the ages. Go to the picture right before this. Yeah. And so we shared our story. Next slide. That slide he was talking about. Previous one. In front of 24,000 people on top of Stone Mountain. And they asked us to lead them in communion. So we've had a communion table out there. And we invited people to the table of brotherhood. That's their room at the table. 